0: Hello and welcome to No Character Limit. My name is Robert Thurk, and today you're going to hear episode 17 of my book entitled Ultima Thule, Unraveling the Unknown. In today's episode, I'm going to cover all of chapter 10 entitled Ice Houses and Greenhouses. Today we often talk about our man-made global warming and try and make predictions on its impact on our species and the planet. And while we still have to wait and see how that is going to impact us, one thing that we can do is look back into Earth's history and see what extremes the planet has already gone through. One mischaracterization of global warming is that we are going to destroy the Earth, but the reality is that we will likely not destroy the Earth, but we will destroy the conditions that make our species able to live on the Earth. Because in today's episode, we're going to see that the Earth has survived through much colder times to where the planet was almost an entire ball of ice, as well as much warmer times as well. Where the ocean was as warm as a hot tub. But episodes like these, I feel like, are better in my book because there are a lot of dates that are going to be thrown out and they can be disorienting. Because in today's episode, we're going to do a deep dive back in time where we are turning the earth clock back at such a record pace that an eccentricity cycle of 100,000 years will fly by like seconds. And if you are not used to jumping back in time millions or billions of years, you can kind of become desensitized or numb to what ages are being talked about in their relationship to each other, kind of getting a sort of time whiplash. In my book, I provide a lot of images that help give a picture to what these different time periods were like, as well as graphs that show important information. And it's always nice to be able to just look up a few lines and check the dates again. So, in order to hopefully make this podcast version of this chapter a little easier to understand, I'm just going to quick outline the few different periods I'm going to talk about in this episode. In about the first half of this episode, I'm going to talk about the five major ice ages that the Earth has gone through. Then, in the second half of this episode, I'm just going to talk about really three hot periods that the Earth has gone through. Just to give you an idea, I'm going to first talk about the beginning of the Quaternary Ice Age, which is the Ice Age we are still currently living through, which began about 2.8 million years ago. But from there, I'm going to jump back to about 360 million years ago to what is called the Karoo Ice Age. Lately, it has changed its name to the late Paleozoic Ice House, but I'm going to call it the Karoo Ice Age for this episode. And again, that was about 360 million years ago. From there, I'm going to talk about the Andean-Sahara Ice Age, about 460 million years ago. Then the Cryogenian Ice Age, 720 million years ago. And finally, the Huronian Ice Age, about 2.4 billion years ago. So, we're going from 2.8 million years ago to 360 million years ago to 460 million years ago, to 720 million years ago, and then finally to 2.4 billion years ago. Then I'm going to start talking about the Hothouses, and I'm going to begin with the Hadean, the hottest time that the Earth has ever experienced, because it was during the formation of the Earth And lasted for a couple of billion years. So I'm going to be as far back as four and a half billion years ago when the Earth was initially forming. But then I'm going to jump back to only a few hundred million years ago, the Cambrian period, which is about 538 million years ago. And finally, I'm going to talk about the Permian period about 299 to 255 million years ago, and I'm going to spend a big chunk of this episode talking about the greatest mass extinction on the face of this earth, which occurred right at the end of the Permian period. The Permian extinction also correlates with the Karoo Ice Age because it occurred right at the end of it. During each one of these ice houses and greenhouses, I talk about what our ancestors were doing at those times, and these range from hominins that look a lot like humans all the way to single-celled organisms. I'm going to try and paint a picture of each one of these periods in time so that you can understand what life on this Earth has had to endure for the last several billion years. So, hopefully that little intro gives you an idea of what's going to be happening in this chapter. Please try and pay attention to the dates. I don't usually skip around between them, so once I move on from the quaternary, we're really not coming back to it, and so on. Please don't forget to like, rate, review, or tell a friend about this podcast. And if you've been enjoying it, please consider a donation because you can get a free PDF copy of the book with any donation you give. And you can also see all of the visuals that I gave as a part of this chapter. You can follow me at Limit at mastodon.world. And you can always reach out to me at nocharacterlimit at protonmail.com. So with that, please enjoy Chapter 10, Ice Houses and Greenhouses. Chapter 10 Ice Houses and Greenhouses Part 1 The Big Five Ice Ages Antarctica has also been immeasurable in helping us understand what happened to the Earth millions of years ago. Nowhere more so than the area of Allen Hills located over 3,000 miles south of New Zealand. At first glance, Allen Hills looks much like the rest of Antarctica, a windswept tundra covered in ice. But in recent years, Allen Hills has been the site of ice core drilling projects uncovering some of the oldest ice in the world. In 2015, the discovery of a one-million-year-old ice core excited researchers and prompted them to return and look for even older ice. And in 2017, they found it. Scientists had drilled an ice core that was over twice as old as the first. It is ice that has been frozen for the last 2.7 million years, from the very beginning of the Quaternary Ice Age. About 3 million years ago, the Earth was warm, even a few degrees warmer than it is today. In the last 3 million years, there has been only about three times where the temperatures had reached current levels or warmer. The first was at the very beginning of the Quaternary Ice Age, around 3 million years ago. The second was the Eemian Interglacial, around 130,000 years ago. And the third time is today, during the Holocene Interglacial. And while the continents are still largely in the same place today as they were 3 million years ago, the face of the Earth would have looked significantly different if you happened to pass by it in space. Florida would have been completely submerged at the beginning of the quaternary, and the east coast of North America would have been about 80 miles inland from where it is today, because of ocean levels being about 60 feet higher. Knowing that today, All of this water is now locked up in the poles, demonstrates the immense impact glaciers have on the Earth. About three million years ago, our human ancestors were bipedal, but our genus did not yet exist. This was the era of Australopithecus and Kenyanthropus genuses the most likely ancestors to the Homo genus. The variety of Australopithecus species roamed an Earth that was warmer than today, but without the use of tools or fire to assist them. At least at first. Evidence has come out within the last decade that these early hominin species may have used tools as early as 3.3 million years ago, at the end of the Neogene period, and even before the Quaternary Ice Age began. Found in what is today Dika, Ethiopia, The remnants of these earliest stone tools have been discovered. This was a species that ate meat, indicated by the fact that the stone tools were found alongside bones that had been cut by them, possibly of goats or cows. But these tools were so crude that it is difficult to determine whether they were manufactured or merely found laying nearby and used. These crude instruments have been called the Lomequian tools, and these ancient hominins lived in a world where summers were primarily ice-free, even at the poles. But around 2.6 million years ago, the ocean currents likely changed dramatically and began cooling the climate, thereby ringing in the first glaciations of the Quaternary Age. The Earth's temperatures began their slow descent year after year, century after century, millennia after millennia, each one not too different from the last, maybe slightly warmer, or probably slightly colder, but always trending downward to a colder and drier planet. Also, just around 2.6 million years ago, the simplistic tools of the Lomequian type were replaced with tools that were made with more care in a systematic way. These new stone tools were called Oldowan, and were more refined than the Lomequian, but still less refined than the Aculean, which would not come around until after the age of Homo erectus had long been established. Another big tool change occurring during a dramatic climate. What pressures did the Milankovitch cycles put on these ancient hominids, and how were they forced to adjust as ice began to form at the poles year-round? It's likely we will never know for certain, but clues over the last million years show that it's likely the Milankovitch cycles were even pressuring these distant hominids to innovate. And on it goes. Given enough information, we could zoom in on any part of Earth's history and see how the climate influenced the evolution of life. But ice cores older than the beginning of the quaternary have not yet been found. So scientists have to turn to reading sediment cores from the bottom of lakes and oceans as well as the elements and isotopes captured inside of rocks with these remains scientists can read the climate for billions of years and it's been discovered that the quaternary ice age is just one of at least five major ice ages throughout earth's history and what is even more astounding is that the quaternary will likely go down in deep history as the shortest ice age of the bunch, lasting only about 3 million years as human-caused climate change will likely see both of the poles revert to being ice-free again within the next century or two. Ice Ages happen very far apart from one another, and often last for tens to hundreds of millions of years at a time. The last Ice Age before the Quaternary, known as the Karoo Ice Age, began 360 million years ago and lasted for 100 million years. This long ago, the Earth would have been completely unfamiliar to us. The continents largely connected on the southern half of the world, where South America, Africa, India, and Antarctica were all connected. The Karoo Ice Age is so long ago that human ancestors weren't even mammals yet but instead, two feet long amphibians whose fins evolved into actual legs over the course of the 100 million year-long ice age. About 10 million years after the Karoo Ice Age ended is when the Glossopterus would flourish across all of these connected continents, imprinting itself in the fossil records only to be found by Robert Scott in his last days of life 250 million years later. And about 100 million years before the Karoo Ice Age began came the shorter Ice Age of the Andean Sahara. The Andean Sahara began about 460 million years ago and it was shorter in that it lasted only about 30 to 40 million years, still over 10 times longer than the current 3 million-year-old quaternary. As it began, continents collided in the South Pole, which built mountains while simultaneously volcanic activity dropped to new lows the sort of prime conditions needed for an ice age. Before the Andean Sahara, ocean currents still flowed through the South Pole, but two massive continents collided to make a supercontinent almost entirely located in the Southern Hemisphere. Ice ages are more likely to occur when there is a continent located on at least one of the poles, because land is able to collect ice better than oceans, especially mountainous land, which was exactly the sort that was building up at the South Pole during the Andean Sahara Ice Age. But as this cooling occurred, plant life was flourishing. The ancestors of humans were no more than armored fish that had recently developed a jaw during the Andean Sahara. But as we know from the evolution of humanity, ice ages can both help and hinder life in different ways. In addition to the Milankovitch cycles, plate tectonics, and volcanic eruptions, life itself was also having an impact on the planet's atmosphere, just as we are doing today. This was one of the first times that you could visit Earth and see greenery on the surface of the continents but if you were to land on the Earth, it would still look largely barren to the naked eye. The greenery that could be seen across the Earth from space was no more than thousands of miles of unbroken mosses and an unusual plant known as the coxonia. I share a picture of what the Cooksonia looks like along with how these different time periods might have appeared in my book. This was a time where there were no trees, no bushes, no flowers. But this plant life was in such abundance that its waste, oxygen, seemed to be becoming the primary cause of the Earth's cooling. And by around 447 million years ago, it was cooling too fast. If they were aware enough of their impact on the climate at this time, there would be little mosses going around warning of the scientifically provable global cooling that was happening while plants continued to dump their oxygen waste in record numbers, bringing deeper and deeper freezes with each passing decade. The Ice Age changed the habits of too many species too quickly and 86% of marine species disappear from the fossil record at this time. One of the greatest mass extinctions in all of history. A tragedy of the global cooling caused by flourishing plant life. But much of the land flora did survive and it subsequently thrived in a variety of new and unique ways that were not possible before the Andean Sahara Ice Age. One of the coldest ice ages to have hit the Earth occurred about 850 million years ago, called the Cryogenian. This ice age lasted for over 220 million years, nearly double the amount of time of the Andean Sahara, Karoo, and Quaternary Ice Ages combined. During this time, the Earth got so cold that at two different times, glaciations extended nearly to the equator, creating a planet that would have looked Nearly, entirely covered in ice. While the Cryogenian Ice Age covered most of the Earth, it seems the scientific consensus right now is that the entire Earth did not freeze up completely, leaving the equators with some liquid water. During the Cryogenian, the average temperature of the Earth dropped to as low as twenty degrees Fahrenheit below zero, nearly creating an unbroken ice sheet that encircled the globe. This was an age before animals existed, our collective ancestor likely being little more than a sea sponge. One of the more complex life forms in the oceans at the time. During the Cryogenian, there was no life on land at all. But the earliest Ice Age was also the most extreme, even colder than the Cryogenian, called the Huronian. The Huronian occurred about 2.4 billion years ago, and lasted for about 300 million years. It was both the coldest and longest ice age of our planet's history. The Earth this deep in the past was a truly alien world, with nothing more than single-celled life hidden beneath the surface of the oceans, One of the earliest supercontinents, known as Kenorland, stretched unbroken from the Arctic to the Antarctic, heavily influencing ocean currents and contributing to the cool-down. But the supercontinent would hold no evidence of life if you could pass by and look down onto the barren rocks of Kenorland. If a person were to be able to land on Kenorland, they would die as soon as they stepped out into the methane-rich atmosphere with little to no oxygen to survive. But things were changing at the beginning of the Huronian. The life that did exist, those single-celled organisms flourishing just beneath the waves were having an extreme impact on the planet. Having recently evolved to emit the waste product of oxygen, the atmosphere began to become oxygen-rich and would react with the methane in the atmosphere to create carbon dioxide which would then be used by the single-celled photosynthetic organisms to create even more oxygen waste. In short, it was a runaway global cooling effect, even more extreme than what took place during the Andean Sahara Ice Age. The organisms would create oxygen, The oxygen would react with the methane to create carbon dioxide, and the carbon dioxide would breed more life. This has since been called the Great Oxygenation Event, and it simultaneously corresponded with the Earth's first great mass extinction, because the oxygen was toxic to nearly all, all living creatures that evolved on a world without it. Although all of the species that went extinct were single-celled organisms, they changed the environment enough that it killed off most of them, and only those that adapted to the newly oxygenated world would have survived from here on out. At the time, Oxygen was a deadly gas to what life was on Earth, and forever after it became a defining feature of our planet, a permanent rejection of a methane-rich planet of life. There are still parts of continents around the world that scientists can go to study the rocks that existed 2.4 billion years ago, called cratons. Most of the rock on Earth has morphed, changed, or melted over the last 2.4 billion years. But not cratons. They've persisted in spite of the Earth's dynamism. One of these cratons is around the modern-day Lake Huron. Which is where the Ice Age gets its name from. Captured in this ancient rock are distant memories of what happened to the Earth billions of years ago. The oxygen waste created by the unicellular sea life iced the Earth for the first 100 million years or so of the Huronian, beginning at the poles and creeping towards the equator. While the removal of greenhouse gases may have triggered the Earth's first ice age, it was likely exacerbated by the connected supercontinent of Kenorland, a lack of activity by volcanoes, and the reflectivity of the ice creating feedback loops that led to a colder and colder planet. Scientists believe that the freeze was so complete that it possibly froze the entire planet from pole to pole, a time that is frequently referred to as Snowball Earth. While sometimes the deep freeze of the Cryogenian Ice Age is grouped in as another Snowball Earth period, It was the Huronian Ice Age that froze the Earth most completely. But the big mystery of the Huronian is how a planet so completely frozen reversed course and was able to warm again. While the exact reason isn't clear, it's likely that the breaking up of the Kenorland supercontinent played a role, allowing for water currents to flow more freely across the planet. Just a little bit of melted ice can allow for more absorption of heat from the sunlight and start a warming feedback loop. This is why warmings, even the one as recently as 11,700 years ago at the start of the Holocene, happen much quicker than it takes for a planetary cooling to happen, which often takes effect over the course of millions of years. It's also possible that volcanic activity contributed to the warming as well, possibly providing the only areas for liquid surface water to exist and capture the warmth of the sunlight. And while the breaking up of Kenorland and volcanoes may have stopped the Earth from remaining a frozen ball, they also may not have been enough to end the 300 million year-long winter of the Huronian. But if that was not enough, then what was able to reverse the trend? in what is today western australia one of these cratons still exist where the earth can be studied on what happened to it two billion years ago in studying this craton scientists discovered mineral crystals indicative of a meteor impact crater that is no longer visible in the largely featureless landscape billions of years later. But as they collected more samples from the area, it became clear that at some point, deep in the planet's history, a space rock had crashed here because at a certain radius, the impact crystals disappear. It's almost like identifying a fingerprint of a person long gone, but knowing they had touched this very spot. And using the half-life of the trace amounts of uranium found within these crystals, scientists were able to date the ancient impact site to about 2.23 billion years ago right around the very middle of the Huronian Ice Age. The impact site turned out to be massive, about a 40-mile-wide crater that would have had to crash through an ice sheet that may have been over three miles thick. By comparison, the deepest ice sheets on Antarctica today are only two miles thick, and Australia was not even in the polar region during the Huronian. This impact site has been named the Yarrabubba Crater after the property it was found on, and has since become a crater of significant scientific interest since it has been dated to be the oldest known impact crater on the planet. The Yarrabubba Crater have scientists thinking that it may have played a significant role in the ending of the Huronian Ice Age. It's known that the coldest part of the Huronian was closer to its beginning as the Great Oxygenation event occurred, and when it most likely froze over nearly completely. The crater size is a little less than half the size of the one that led to the extinction of the dinosaurs about 66 million years ago, but would have vaporized a sizable amount of ice and helped kickstart the trend of warming over the final half of the Huronian Ice Age, with a little help from the Milankovitch Cycles. Of course, we can't be too certain about what exactly happened to bring the Earth out of its first, longest, and coldest ice age, because 2 billion years is just so long ago. Just as with the Toba Catastrophe Theory, where some scientists put forth the narrative that the Indonesian supervolcano 70,000 years ago Kick started the human migration out of Africa, it's important not to jump to conclusions from circumstantial evidence alone. As more evidence came in about the Toba eruption, it ultimately didn't seem to be linked to the L3 human migration. Some scientists were looking for a connection where there wasn't one. While there is no doubt that the Yarrabubba impact would have had an effect on the Earth when it hit, its role in the greater climate change of the Huronian Ice Age is hard to say without further evidence. The shards of the past can only provide a glimpse before human speculation takes over. But one cannot help but to speculate what this impact did to the snowball Earth, and what might have happened instead if it just passed silently by in space. Chapter 10, Part 2, Earth, the Hothouse. Ice ages like the Huronian and Cryogenian may have lasted for hundreds of millions of years, turning Earth into an ice house, but at least 70% of the last 2.5 billion years has been hotter periods, known as Greenhouse Earth. Carbon dioxide levels can reach up to 20 times greater than today, and has left the planet ice-free more often than not. The fact that Antarctica today is still a continent of ice is a rarity in Earth's history. Yet, at the same time, having permanent ice at the poles is the only type of Earth that humanity has ever known. We are an Ice Age species, and understanding what a greenhouse Earth was like can feel a bit like learning about an alien planet, because it is unlike anything we as a species or even as a genus, have ever experienced. It makes sense that the Earth was at its hottest 4.5 billion years ago when it was first forming with oceans that consisted of molten rock rather than water. Temperatures reached over 3,600 degrees Fahrenheit. But it was a planet without life, without water, and only a budding atmosphere. Most depictions of hell would easily match a description of the young Earth. This era is known as the Hadian Era because the underworld of Hades is often conflated with the Christian concept of hell. It was rocky, barren, hot, deadly, and glowing bright red in its magma-exposed scars. But if we exclude the early formation of the Earth, then one of the next hottest moments was 4 billion years later, about 543 million years ago, known as the Cambrian period. Around this time, Earth had been steadily warming for about 100 million years, since the end of the Cryogenian Ice Age. It warmed well beyond the average global temperature of about 60 degrees Fahrenheit that we're familiar with today, far warmer than merely melting the ice at the poles. By 543 million years ago, the average global temperature was hitting a sweltering 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Instead of tropical rainforests across the globe, a visitor from space would just see a vast ocean and bare, desolate, rocky continents because life had not yet formed on land. But this was deceptive, as beneath its waves, the ocean was teeming with life, albeit mostly with single-celled life. The diversity of life that we so much have come to expect to see today had not yet occurred in the Precambrian Ocean, but this was all about to change. Suddenly, in a comparatively short time frame, whole new species evolved in just a few short million years clam like shells, mollusks, ancestors of insects and spiders, and the classic hard-shelled trilobites suddenly reigned supreme during the Cambrian greenhouse earth. This sudden burst in diversity of life is referred to as the Cambrian Explosion. I've actually shared a lot of pictures of what some of these creatures looked like in my book because they are really something that should be seen more than imagined when you hear it. There were even more unusual species that are unlike anything that exists today, whose evolutionary lineages have since gone extinct. With names as bizarre as the creatures themselves, the diversity of life was growing rapidly just beneath the surface of the waves, kickstarting the rest of evolution. One of these extinct groups are known as the Helkiariids, which have been described as slugs in chainmail. And even though there were no land species at this time, they do sort of resemble some caterpillars that have long and elaborate spines shooting off of their back. Another alien-looking creature was the scathoscallux which was a ringed worm dozens of centimeters in length with a snout resembling a red ball cactus. It was also the origin of the demo sponge, the most dominant form of sponge on earth today. Strange blobs of organic mass that straddled the line between plant and animal. Perhaps one of the most fascinatingly foreign species was the Morella, resembling to some extent a trilobite without a shell while at the same time being completely unrelated to it. Beneath the surface of this sweltering water world, life proliferated like it never did before, or since. And while it may have been a world that would seem creepy-crawly to us today, these are the roots of all complex life as we know it. The collective ancestors of all life today, born in a hothouse earth. But what a greenhouse earth can give, it can also take away. Once the Cambrian was over, the earth continued to fluctuate between hothouses and ice houses. Over the next couple hundred million years, the Earth would experience warm periods that wouldn't quite reach the temperatures of the Cambrian, as well as the ice ages of the Andean Sahara and the Karoo, before reaching similar sweltering Cambrian temperatures again around 250 million years ago. This would be the last time where global temperatures would reach the Cambrian heights, once again melting all long term ice from the Earth. About 260 million years ago, the Karoo Ice Age ended rather abruptly, bringing global temperatures from a cool 50 degrees Fahrenheit about five or six degrees cooler than today, to over 90 degrees Fahrenheit, with ocean temperatures around the equator exceeding 104 degrees over the relatively short time span of a few million years. This new hothouse was known as the Permian period. It was At the height of this greenhouse earth around 252 million years ago, that something catastrophic happened. An unrivaled extinction that eclipsed even the one that made the dinosaurs go extinct around 66 million years ago. Dinosaurs did not yet exist 252 million years ago, but it was not so far back in time that the land was as barren as it was during the Cambrian explosion. There had been almost 300 million years since the Cambrian, and the Earth had time to cover its surface with plants and animals. But rather than being a greenhouse earth that helped life develop as in the Cambrian, this hothouse 252 million years ago set off one of the greatest mass extinctions the earth had ever seen. The Permian began in the middle of the Karoo Ice Age around 300 million years ago with fish and lizards as the dominant species. But it ends with this mass extinction event 252 million years ago where the dominant land species were the synapsids. Synapsids are an unusual species that resemble both mammals and reptiles and are the common ancestor of all mammals today. At the end of the Permian 252 million years ago, mammals had not yet evolved, and synapsids were the closest thing that could be found to them. They had many features in common with mammals, including a temporal opening in the skull around the jaw muscle, which may help muscles to expand and contract. Synapsids have bones from the lower jaw incorporated into their inner ear, just as many mammals, including humans, do today. They have teeth and upright limbs similar to mammals today as well. But synapsids did not look mammalian. Rather, they looked a lot more like a reptile. And like a reptile, they laid eggs and were hairless. So to the untrained eye, there wouldn't seem much of a difference between synapsids and reptiles. While they weren't quite the size of large dinosaurs, They could grow to be over 10 feet in length, and some had spines along their back, almost like a stegosaurus. But instead of plates, the spines were long and thin and webbed together like a folding fan spread across their back. In the nearly 300 million years since the Cambrian explosion, Life continued to diversify and evolve, both on land and in water. Sharks had been around already for 200 million years by this point, and the Glossopterus tree found by Robert Scott had just recently evolved into existence for the first time. The world at the end of the Permian would have been much more recognizable to us than the barren wasteland of the Cambrian, but it would have still felt primitive. The Glossopteris had a lot more features in common with a fern than with modern deciduous trees, and the hairlessness of the land animals would have felt a little like living in an episode of The Land Before Time. This primitive world was playing out on one of the Earth's longest supercontinents known as Gondwana that lasted from before the Cambrian explosion until well after the end of the Permian. Later on, Gondwana made up just the southern portion of the even greater supercontinent of Pangea for a time. It's because all of today's supercontinents were connected like this that fossils from this time, like the Glossopteris, are found sitting in the wastelands of frozen Antarctica, as well as the humid rainforests of India, thousands of miles apart. All of these lands that are so separated today were connected for hundreds of millions of years. So, how bad was the extinction 252 million years ago as temperatures reached their fever pitch? The asteroid or comet that destroyed the dinosaurs 66 million years ago created a mass extinction of about half, of the Earth's plant and animal species. Undoubtedly catastrophic. But the Permian extinction event destroyed about 95% of life in the ocean and a very high percentage of life on land. It was almost a complete reset. Luckily for all mammals, Some synapsids survived the cataclysmic event and went on to also survive the impact 66 million years ago as well, which is why we, and all other mammals, exist today. Not only is the extinction event of the Permian nearly twice as bad as the extinction of the dinosaurs, but it's more mysterious as well because the cause of it is still largely unknown. While it's pretty clear that an asteroid or comet was the cause of the dinosaur extinction, there are a variety of culprits that could have been the cause of the much older Permian extinction. Rocks that hold the record of whatever happened 252 million years ago show a healthy and diverse earth covered in trees that gave off pollen, but then suddenly the geological record switched to primarily fossilized fungus, a sign of a significant die-off. It's thought that fungi proliferated due to the mass extinction event, since fungi are typically decomposers of dead material. What makes the Permian extinction event even more difficult to understand is that experts disagree with how long it took to occur. Some think that it took place in as short of time as 100,000 years, while others have claimed that this was a process that took place over several hundred thousand years, separating the mass extinction of marine life from that of the land extinction. Whatever caused the end Permian event seems to be potentially more complex than a giant rock from space crashing into Earth. Or is it? There are two potential ancient impact craters that could be candidates as the catalyst that led to the mass extinction of life on the planet at the end of the Permian. The first is located in Wilkesland in eastern Antarctica. Discovered using satellites that can peer beneath a mile of ice, a project between Ohio State and NASA in the early 2000s found a mass concentration of mantle material at the surface of the Earth centered in a near-perfect 300-mile diameter ring that could fit the state of Ohio inside of it. The discovery of this crater has similarities with observations of impact craters on the moon. Impact craters this large hit the crust of the Earth so hard that it exposes the underlying mantle layer bringing it up to the surface of the Earth, which can be detected due to the fact that mantle material is typically more dense than the crust. The team working on this discovery dated the impact crater to just about 250 million years ago, give or take a few million years putting it close to the end Permian extinction. An asteroid that could leave an impact this large would have been several times larger than the one that killed the dinosaurs, which could very well lead to a mass extinction of such a scope. The impact could have been so large that it fractured Gondwana ultimately splitting the supercontinent with a rift cutting directly through this potential impact site. But there are some serious doubts that the Land Crater is the cause of the Permian extinction, or whether it is even a crater at all. It's possible that the mass concentration of mantle material found at the surface could have been the result of some unknown plume that was pushed up through the Earth at the time. If this was the case, undoubtedly it would still have an impact on the climate and life on Earth. Given that this appears directly on a rift, also gives credence to the theory that this was caused from below rather than above. To get further information on what caused this massive geological anomaly would require a physical trip to the site itself, across the tundra of Antarctica, setting up camp drilling a mile deep beneath the ice, and collecting samples as they did at Yarrabubba. While at the time of the project that studied the Land anomaly in the early 2000s, this was the hopeful next step, it seems that no one has taken on this expensive and dangerous challenge icing the Antarctic impact crater theory as the cause of the end Permian extinction for the time being. The other extraterrestrial candidate for the cause of the end Permian extinction lies in another difficult-to-reach location at the bottom of the ocean off of the coast of Northwest Australia, known as Bedout. Named for a nearby island. It was not an easy thing to find this potential impact site in a remote corner of the world's ocean, and it relied on careful attention by geological researchers at the University of California at Santa Barbara and the University of Rochester in New York. It began with an unrelated observation found in rocks that dated back to about 251 million years ago, within a million years of the end Permian extinction event, particularly the observation of specific isotopes of helium and argon trapped in the atoms of carbon. These Unusual isotopes were indicative of an impact that took place around this time, but ancient impacts easily get eroded away unless they are encased under the ice like the potential crater in Wilkesland, or left in lands as dry and desiccated as the 2 billion year old impact crater of Yarrabubba in Australia. The researchers knew that the likelihood of finding a 251 million year old impact crater was low, and that if it was under the ocean, it would likely never be discovered. So, it was with luck that the potential bed out impact site first gained the attention of an oil drilling exploration team in the 1970s that noticed a dome on the sea floor that is typically indicative of an oil deposit. Yet, upon drilling in the area, they instead found what they labeled as volcanic rock. They collected a few samples and brought them back and they were subsequently forgotten for decades. They were later mentioned in an oil industry journal as potential meteor impact debris. Only when one of the researchers that studied the unusual 251-million-year-old isotopes got a hold of some of these bed-out samples did they realize that what the drilling team had discovered wasn't volcanic rock, but instead were samples of rock that were melted due to the shock of an impact. Further studying of the samples revealed the discovery of feldspar, which does not form in volcanic eruptions. With increasing excitement, the team then inspected the Bedout site and found impact fractures as well as a rim 120 miles across. The size of this crater is comparable to the one that made the dinosaurs go extinct and would have been caused by a space rock the size of Mount Everest. In many ways, this crater has more credence than the potential impact site at Wilkesland. But Bedout also has its critics. Upon further evaluation from other geologists. It seems many of the conclusions from this research, the shock melt, the dating, the cause for geological metamorphism, could be flawed. For a brief moment in the mid 2000s, the excited claim that the smoking gun for the end Permian extinction was the Betout impact reached popular science outlets, only to be followed by silence for over a decade. One of the more controversial aspects of the end Permian mass extinction is over what period of time it occurred. The most common story told is that the extinction event is very sudden. Very sudden, in this case, means taking place over tens or hundreds of thousands of years. A geologist's sort of sudden, rather than the average person's idea of sudden. The best evidence for this comes from the hills of eastern China, where there are well-preserved layers of rock that date back to the end Permian extinction, filled with fossils. While accessible by land today, At the time of the world's greatest mass extinction, these rocks were deep in the ocean, where carefully preserved layers of sediment and fossils now give us a glimpse into this past. These rocks have been the focus of decades of research on this apocalyptic event and are some of the strongest evidence that the event took place. Over time, researchers have narrowed the window of when this extinction took place from within a 200,000-year window, once again sudden in geological time, to taking place within about a thirty thousand-year window, which is about as precise as 252 million-year-old rocks are going to provide. There are clues left behind in the rocks leading up to the mass extinction as well. Ocean temperatures rose from a balmy 85 degrees Fahrenheit to a sickening 95 degrees, and continued to heat up even further after the extinction took place. Some calculations of the seawater temperature at the peak of the extinction are as high as 104 degrees Fahrenheit. Ocean creatures would have been swimming in temperatures equivalent to a hot tub, mysteriously The fossil record shows that life in the steadily warming oceans during the 30,000 years leading up to the mass extinction was not dying out in any significant numbers, until suddenly they were. The decades-long research at the hills of eastern China have created a scientific consensus that indeed the end Permian extinction was fairly sudden for ocean life. But that consensus begins to break down for how this extinction impacted life on land. While it's largely undisputed that about 95% of ocean life went extinct fairly fast, the percentages for what the extinction on land were range between 70 and 95%. And even with this range, there is still a lot of room for discussion. Every year, new research comes out which should clear up the issue, but has, in some ways, complicated it further. One thing is certain, though. The atmosphere was warming, just as the oceans were causing reptiles, synapsids, and even fish to migrate away from the equator towards the poles and there is no doubt that many land species ceased to exist during the end Permian. Of particular note is the fungal spike in the geological record, indicating that suddenly many plants and trees had died, leaving fungus to reign supreme for a time. For decades, the strong evidence found in the sediment from the eastern hills of China proving the sudden ocean die-off was assumed to be linked with the mass extinction of land animals found in geological sites in Africa and Italy but most recently some credible sources are finding that the ocean and land extinction might not be so inextricably linked. In late 2019, the results of 18 years of research funded by the National Science Foundation came to a conclusion that confounds the sequence of events of the end Permian even further. Geologist Robert Gestaldo led the research in the Karoo Basin in South Africa which is also a prime location for studying the preceding Karoo Ice Age, just before the end Permian warming occurred. Gestaldo had every expectation that his work would corroborate the results of the marine extinction firmly established in Eastern China with a similar extinction of land animals. Instead, Gastaldo's research found that there seemed to be no significant impact of life on land during the time of the massive ocean extinction. If these results hold up, this squarely takes off the likelihood of an asteroid or meteor impact being the cause, as it's almost impossible to imagine how that would solely impact ocean life to such a high degree, without any meaningful impact on terrestrial life. At the same time, a little over a decade ago, the most popular theory was that the end Permian was the result of an asteroid or comet, so the results of Gestaldo's work are now going to have to hold up to the scientific rigor of the geological community. What makes Gestaldo's results even more intriguing is that he is not claiming that there wasn't a massive die-off of land species at all, but instead, he's claiming that the die-off occurred much earlier than the time frame set by the Eastern China research. Instead of the extinction of an era ending with an exclamation point like it did in the ocean, Gistaldo's research found that life on land changed with more of an ellipsis. Gastaldo finds that life on land began changing hundreds of thousands of years before the end Permian event, and that change was far more gradual than what happened in the ocean. The end Permian extinction is named as such because it is the end of a period in geological time which spanned 47 million years and was primarily dominated by the Karoo Ice Age. Only at the very end did temperatures begin to rise to near-unprecedented levels, which was punctuated by the greatest extinction the Earth had ever seen. It is this event that begins the new geological period of the Triassic. The dividing up of these geological time periods can be somewhat arbitrary, as any life living between any geological time divide would have no real sense of understanding that they just survived, for example, from the Pleistocene Epoch into the Holocene Epoch. But if ever there was a case for a good, hard geological divide, It would be life before the end Permian extinction event and life after. Up until this point, an entirely different world of species, many of which would feel so foreign to us today, ruled the land and the sea. And then suddenly, they almost all vanish from the fossil record. What emerged into the Triassic were still species that in many ways were different from those that exist today, but they were also one step closer than the strange and unusual creatures of the Permian. Gestaldo's findings say that the extinction of these terrestrial Permian species didn't happen with the same abruptness that occurred in the oceans. While there was a significant change in the biodiversity of life on land, they began hundreds of thousands of years earlier than the very narrow 30,000-year window of the oceanic extinction set forth by the studies in eastern China. Land species began dying off well before this event, and species that would come to reign supreme in the Triassic began appearing in the fossil record before the end Permian event as well. But even as life on land seemed relatively unaffected by the massive ocean die-off, Gestaldo still asserts that there was a large extinction event on land, but that it likely happened about 300,000 years before the oceanic extinction. This would be like if the end Permian Oceanic Extinction happened today The extinction of plant and animal life on land would have happened before Homo sapiens even evolved into existence. Still relatively close together in geological time, but definitely nothing that could be considered a result of the same event. Gestaldo is certain that some sort of mass extinction occurred to plant life on land. The massive amounts of fungus found in the fossil record can't be denied. But he is less convinced that the animal life on land had such a sudden shakeup. While Gestaldo's research definitely complicates the story of the end Permian extinction event, it is also not the final say in the investigation. With the intensive research that has occurred in the Karoo Basin of South Africa over the last two decades, more precise dating methods have been used. It has been determined that much of the Keru record also occurs before the end Permian event, and does not necessarily have the best land record of what was occurring during the precious 30,000-year window indicated by the China studies. In this case, there is still a lot more to be discovered about what happened at the time of the event, particularly on land. Gestaldo may be searching for his car keys under the streetlight merely because that is the only place he can see. Just as with the big splash made by the Antarctic and Australian impact sites, there may be further evidence that comes to light that challenges Gestaldo's decades-long research conclusions. By no means does this mean Gestaldo's research is worthless, but instead it helps us paint a more accurate picture about what was happening around the time of the end Permian extinction. It's worth knowing that life on land began going extinct well before the 300,000-year window focused on by the research in China, and is another important clue to the case. It's worth knowing that life on land began going extinct well before the 30,000-year window focused on by the research in China and is another important clue to the case. One of the most important factors that remains consistent between these studies is that there was some serious warming going on across the planet for hundreds of thousands of years, and this alone would have had a major impact on the biodiversity of life. Could the Milankovitch cycles have caused this warming at the end of the Permian all on their own? It seems unlikely. Enter the main suspect to the end Permian extinction, the Siberian Traps Travel to Siberia, one of the largest unbroken ecosystems on the face of the Earth, and you are likely standing on top of the Siberian Traps. The Siberian Traps are roughly 3 million square miles of basaltic rock that have been there for just about the last 250 million years or so. I have a map showing the massive size of the Siberian traps in my book. Traps comes from the Swedish word for stairs, as the massive amounts of magma that came from the Earth left behind blocks of solidified basalt that look like stairs. Scientists from all corners of the globe have come to conclude that the Siberian Traps played a very significant role in the Permian-Triassic extinction event due to the sheer amount of magma that was released upon the surface of the Earth. For context, the Toba Super Eruption, which is the largest volcanic eruption in the last 100,000 years, might be like comparing a large bonfire with a nuclear explosion when you put it next to the Siberian traps. The massive supervolcano, hidden just beneath Yellowstone, looks like the head of a pin compared to the Siberian Traps, according to one scientist who had studied one of the largest mass eruptions in the history of the Earth. The Siberian Traps eruption was on another scale entirely. And if you could fly over the Earth in a spaceship during their eruption, an easily visible black, red, and orange blob would be seen scarring the land from space, despite the rest of the planet still being blue and green. This is because the Siberian traps did not erupt all at once, but instead Consistently erupted large volumes of magma for about 1 to 2 million years. The exact size of the eruption and how long it lasted are not fully known, but one thing that is known is that it was erupting for quite some time before, during, and after the Permian extinction event. One study by MIT in 2015 reported that the Siberian traps began about 300,000 years before the end Permian event, right at the same time that Gastaldo's research crew found when the extinction of life on land began. The fact that these two numbers coincide indicate that the beginning of the eruptions from the Siberian traps may have initiated a mass extinction of life on land, leading to the death of many plants, causing the fungal spike, and creating a languishing sort of extinction for the land animals and plants that remained. Further studies on the Siberian traps reveal they were likely the main cause of the global warming of the time, pushing the temperatures of the ocean and atmosphere to record extremes. While volcanoes can have both a cooling and warming effect depending on the type of eruption, The Siberian traps were so hot that they cooked sediment and coal, which released high volumes of carbon dioxide and methane into the air, the two biggest contributors to rising global temperatures, and the exact same gases being released into the atmosphere by us today. This runaway global warming effect would have depleted the oxygen of the oceans, causing all life to move away from the equator and thinning out ocean diversity until a final collapse consumed the remaining life and caused the end Permian extinction. This could have happened relatively quickly in the ocean over the course of about 30,000 years. Naturally, more research needs to be collected to confirm any of this. Within the last few years, the evidence shows the eruption of the Siberian traps having gone from spanning only about 1 million years to at least 2 million years a substantial difference in time. The research done in the Karoo Basin didn't get enough data on what occurred precisely at the time of the end Permian extinction, and the size and scope of the Siberian traps eruption still has left a lot to be discovered. Even more, the question of what caused the Siberian Trap's eruption to begin with is still largely unanswered. What makes the Siberian Trap's highly unusual is that they did not occur on any plate boundary lines, as most eruptions do. This leaves the likelihood of what is known as a mantle plume which is similar to what is occurring under the surface of Yellowstone today. A plume of hot molten rock can rise through convection from thousands of miles beneath the crust to the surface and remain there for the course of millions of years, pumping magma out onto the surface of the Earth. But if this is the case, how did this mantle plume form? Was it by the natural processes of the Earth, or did something jog the Earth into spewing such vast quantities of magma into the Earth's surface for millions of years? Once again, the Wilkes Land Crater in Antarctica returns as a potential accomplice to the Siberian traps to explain this post-apocalyptic landscape. Today, the Siberian traps are nearly on the exact opposite side of the world as this mysterious Antarctic crater. It's possible that a giant asteroid or comet from space slammed into the Earth at Antarctica and caused magma to come spewing out the other side of the planet for millions of years. Without further evidence, any asteroid-related impacts to the end Permian extinction will remain on the fringe. As scientists continue to collect information on the Permian-Triassic extinction in the few places on the planet that still have geological time capsules that are this old, more clear information on what caused the Earth's greatest mass extinction should be forthcoming. To this episode of No Character Limit. Every episode, the sources that I used are located in the description. If you would like to check them out, in addition, please consider liking, rating, and reviewing if you enjoyed this podcast. As each one goes to help further the reach of this podcast for new people to hear. Each episode requires hours in research, writing, recording, and editing. So if you feel that what you just heard is worth a donation of any size, please go to the description and follow the links for that. Each donation, comes with a free PDF copy of a writing piece of your choice, no matter the size of your donation, and you get a lot of extra features with that, including a lot of the artwork and graphs and pictures, as well as the descriptions that I don't include in the podcast If you would like updates for new episodes, you can follow NoCharacterLimit at Mastodon.world. And finally, if you have a question, comment, or even a correction, please feel free to reach out at NoCharacterLimit at ProtonMail.com.